When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Forever Dog. This episode of The Need to Fail is brought to you by a DVD of the movie Porky's. Yeah, let me reveal something about myself here. I bought a DVD of the movie Porky's in college because I thought that's what a 19-year-old young man needed in his repertoire, right? Display that like my Scarface poster. Fucking shoot me. But I never watched the movie once, never even opened it. And I saw it like years later. I saw bits and pieces of it on TV one day. It made no sense. They're supposed to be in high school in Florida, but everyone's like 30 and half of them talk with a Brooklyn accent. There's tits everywhere. Damn, what a time to make movies, let me tell you. Anyway, I still have a DVD of the movie Porky's that's never been opened, never been spun. This wasn't a good intro. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Need to Fail. My name is Don Finelli. I run this thing. A quick funny story for you. The day I decided to end this whole thing, I got an email out of nowhere from someone at T Public, and they were like, hey, listen to your podcast. I'm surprised you don't have any merchandise set up. Do you want any uh, help with that uh, if you don't? And I was like, you know what? I thought about it on and off, never pulled the trigger. And well, I'm ending this thing. So it's uh, too little too late, I think. And to her credit, she's like, who cares? Let's create something as a farewell to the project. And I said, well, the only thing I can think of is making like a Mahalo Your Dreams shirt slash design. And that's about it. So that's what we did. I gave him some ideas. Uh, I wanted to kind of make this design a little bit more universal. Uh, I just wanted it to be kind of funny, less podcast centric. Uh, and their uh, designer came back with a really funny design to me. So we're all systems go on that right now. So now I have a Mahalo Your Dreams uh, t-shirt and design that you can put on anything. Uh, compliments of the wonderful folks at Tee Public. Hey, it's never too late to support the pod, I say. If you want a little parting memory of the podcast, now you can have it. Just go to Tee Public. You can uh, search the need to fail or Mahalo Your Dreams uh, and, uh, I'm also just going to post a specific link on all my social whatevers. And, uh, right now I have a flash sale for all my listeners, uh, from today, July 7th to, I believe Friday, July 10th. Uh, you will get a sweet discount on any need to fail merch you buy. So feel free to go nuts. Uh, need to fail flash sale, July 7th to the 10th, no discount code or any of that shit needed. Uh, thanks to T Public for all their help with this. Uh, full disclosure, I get a tiny percentage of all sales. I'm sure I'm going to become a multimillionaire from this. So thank you so much in advance. I said we get to the show, all right? It's with my pen ultimate regular guest. We have the wonderful, the hilarious, the supremely talented Anna Salinas on today, a UCB regular in both improv and sketch. Uh, but you might know her uh, best for her insanely popular viral web comic, Bad Comics by Anna, uh, where she chronicles her struggles with anxiety and depression and all sorts of other fun stuff. 
Uh, Anna just finished up being a staff writer on the adult animated series Sugar and Toys on Fuse, which will be dropping this fall. Uh, she's also a Sundance New Voices fellow uh, and was a woman in film blacklist episodic fellow for her spy thriller Inside Cunt. Uh, she's currently in post-production of her forthcoming uh, crowdfunded comedy short Foghorn, which should drop at the end of the year. Anna and I improvised together, I think only once. I think it was either the beginning of this year, end of last year. My brain is so fucking shot. But I remember having a blast performing with her. She was so funny. And I, I started following her comic immediately. I absolutely loved it. I continue to love it. I uh, highly recommend uh, checking it out if you haven't yet. I was so excited to talk about the origins of it with her. And we also relate to each other because we were both teachers for a very short amount of time in our lives. We talk about a whole bunch of great stuff in this one, right? And it was an absolute blast to talk to. I was so happy to connect with her before I ended this thing. And I was honored that she was a fan of the pod as well. So, hey, let's jump into it, okay? Here she is, Anna Salinas. I used to run a show. Um, mm-hmm at clubhouse called the pickle mm-hmm. hour cool. and i ran it with my sketch partner heather and we put uh-huh. so much effort yeah. into it like we would buy props and costumes all for this like little show that had eight people and those eight people loved it every show they'd be yeah. like oh it's the best show in town you guys really do it mm-hmm. up we would have fully memorized like <laughs> really intense sketch bits and after yeah. two years it was like or maybe three years i was like this is not, I can't, I don't have the bandwidth, like the amount of time we're putting into this. Yeah. 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 It's good because it it, like, I I think, I think it's so powerful to like fully commit to something and exactly. And not really care, not necessarily not care who's seeing it, but like dedicating so much for yourself as well is such an important thing to start learning when you start doing comedy. Like, yes, the, the feeling of going balls out. Yeah, uh, and seeing and and being proud of that, I think that's such a powerful. It moment. is, and to be like, I really did my best with this, and it's something I'm proud of. Like, right, that right. felt good, and it gives you a good sense of self and like self worth. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because it, you're, it's the whole like it's not the fucking destination; it's the journey. But it really does come down to it's like a microcosm of that because like you feel kind of. Especially when you're working with someone else, I think mm-hmm. like you kind of you feel what it's like to feel in you know in sync with someone and and just kind of go just full effort on something and and see if you put maximum effort into something or if you just put effort into something. Yeah, you know what I mean. And don't talk yourself out of it. Yeah, like you, usually you feel satisfied. There's some satisfaction that comes from that. It's it's such a good lesson, and I think yeah. I mean that's doing it with someone else. I can't imagine doing it alone. I mean, right. I can't imagine because I guess I have done things alone, but sure, sure. I'm so bad at it. Like with podcasts, how many times have I said, oh gosh, I'm going to do a podcast. I even announced it on Twitter. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to do a cheese centered podcast. It's going to be about the history of cheese. It's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> Got all this support. People be like, cool. Yeah. I made a, a logo and then I started writing the episodes and I was like, what am this is so much work i don't love cheese like i love cheese but i don't think i love cheese history enough to dedicate hours upon hours researching i literally bought a book on cheese history and it's so fucking boring 
Yeah. I wish yeah. it wasn't. I kept looking for the fun ends to it, but it is really dry. Yeah, my my last guest, James, who came out today, was an old buddy of mine. Um, it was basically like he figured out the difference between loving the dream and loving the journey. Yes. And sometimes the loving the dream is much easier than loving loving the journey. And it's kind of once you click into loving the journey, like if if it's for you, like writing or or, mm-hmm. or comics and stuff like that, if you click into like that love, like where you feel like you almost have not necessarily endless creativity, but like it's always going to be there for you kind of thing. Yes. Then, yeah. And there's something there's something there I think that you know it, it's it's good to follow that I think. Um I think so too. I think it it was true with like this show, The Pickle Hour mm-hmm. I hosted where we loved doing it for two and a half years or whatever it was and then yeah. suddenly we were both like, "Oh, this isn't fun anymore. It's not fun <laughs> killing ourselves." And you know, we had called in all the favors already. So Yeah. Yeah. Like it would be like two people in the audience towards the end. Yeah. And yeah. the improv teams that we'd have would be late because they didn't want to be there. And it was like, this is, we got what we got. There's, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. exactly. There's no more that can be gotten out of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then you move on. And I think some folks can. I think some folks like the routine of something and the, the predictability of something. And I think yeah. to be creative, I think routine is really helpful in certain aspects of creativity, but also there's that, like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's next. That starts sparking that, like, fear, mm-hmm. like, thing that happens. And maybe it's just a personal thing, but then that starts all sorts of shit going on in my brain. That yes. is like, I got to, I think it's like the search for knowing, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I got to know, I got to know. So then creativity kicks in and is like, well, what about this? What about this? You know? Yes. And it's like a survival instinct i think for creatives it's Whereas so I think a, a lot true. of other people would just settle and just chill the fuck out and be like i got i read my newspaper in the morning and n- nothing against doing that by the way <laughs> yeah nothing against if that's your thing i think uh, i i personally need routine i'm a routine person and mm-hmm. and i feel very uncomfortable and i break them mm-hmm. but sometimes it's necessary to break those routines and uh yes and i i I think that's part of why this quarantine has been so difficult creatively. Not the for quarantine everybody. has been difficult. Yeah. yeah why, why is the, why is the quarantine? I, I was even, you know, I was looking through a lot of your comics. I'd follow you. I love them. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge oh, thank fan. You. Um, and I saw like, yeah, I saw that, that the quarantine, I noticed that the quarantine, it seemed like you were having difficulty being creative during it. Yeah, you know, I work from home a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I've mm-hmm. just the last many months been freelance writing. Mm-hmm. Um which meant that I had to f- make my own routine of like I'm going to go for a hike. Mm-hmm. I w- I'm just not a morning person, so I won't start working till like 11. I'll have like a mm-hmm. nice breakfast. But I had yeah. really hit a routine. And then quarantine right. happened, and you'd think nothing would have changed. <laughs> really? <laughs> and it, it, yeah. it had it, technically. I was still working from home. Um, right. But suddenly, that even that small disturbance of like, well, I'm not the only one working at home. Um, like Edgar yeah. and I had right. Edgar, uh, who will you know be on this podcast, yep. had just moved in together. So I had... That yeah. disturbance right when quarantine started and we were both suddenly working from home and Crazy. we couldn't go to a coffee shop. Yep. 
And that was enough that I felt totally paralyzed and Mm -hmm. unable to think of comic (laughs) ideas, to think of like script ideas, to work on my scripts. I could only do the bare minimum of like what I was being paid to do. Um, Yeah. Oh, you, you, you were suffering, you have, I mean, from your comics, you suffer from anxiety. Yes. And I'm sure that just went through the fucking roof. It did. It did. (laughs) When all this stuff hits. Yeah. I mean, like with every, that's the crazy thing. It's like everyone was suffering, but Mm -hmm. I was so anxious. I thought Mm -hmm. my dad was going to die because he's immunocompromised and in Florida and working at the hospital. And I, I was so paralyzed with it. And then it. I read this thing on Twitter about someone who was in China talking about like, hey, we've been in quarantine for two months. So let me tell you how it's going to go. And they <laughs> described exactly what I was feeling, the like panic. Yeah. And then right. they said, and then after two months, you will feel more normal. You mm-hmm. will get as used to this as you can. And it was so true. After right. two months, maybe a month and a half. Yeah. Um, I started to feel clear again. Um, right. And I could write again and I could sort of make comics, even though it's still, <laughs> man, when we are all just at home, it's like, what else could I talk about? Um, yeah. And then, you know, all these protests started and that kind of sent me into a tailspin again. But yeah, it was kind of like a kind of three level perfect storm yes. situation which is like uh, anxiety in a lot of different levels and it's and mm-hmm. then everyone has their own individual experiences going through this and of course some people have it a lot more a lot of, you know they're they're much worse off yeah and but it doesn't diminish i've learned through therapy that that doesn't really help um being yeah. like well other people have it worse it's because it's almost like denying the anxiety yeah. In yourself. And it's almost like the confronting and accepting is the stuff that works personally for me. And it's sometimes when you go like, well, I shouldn't be feeling like this. Other people have it much worse. There's other, there's more, impor- you know, crazy things. Right? There's this global pandemic. There's civil unrest. Right. Uh, for me, I was, I'm trying to raise a, you know, one year old. So it's like, but other people have it worse than me, but it's, you're almost kind of running away from those feelings. <laughs> right. You're you really, not you really legitimizing need to just, like, them. Confront them. Right. Yeah. 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 I think that's part of what made it hard to make comics about anxiety and depression. Right. Because it felt like the, th- and this is not real. This is destructive thinking, but it felt like the causes of my anxiety and depression were not important enough. And it's, yeah. it's felt like that even now with the protests. It's like me being just chronically anxious mm-hmm. doesn't feel important enough to be drawing into comics. Now, I don't think that is true. It was just sort of the narrative yeah. I was telling myself, and that's what made it so hard to be creative when right. my whole brand is uh, anxiety <laughs> and depression. Yeah, but it's the same thing with like doing this podcast, though, because I was like, who... Who the fuck wants to hear about failures during this time? And I had mm-hmm. some very nice people write in, and one person in particular was like, "This is the exact time I want to like listen, and because I'm feeling so down, I want to hear yes. these stories help me push forward." But I think personally talking about these this stuff with people, my narrative that was like, "I really don't think anybody wants to hear. That. I really don't think it, you know what I mean." And 
there's so much worse stuff out there than here. I don't know, but it's like the it, it's the stories we're telling ourselves, right? And right, and those it's, often dominate the conversation. Yes, and it's so clear for me as an outside party to look at your podcast and be like, "Oh no, that's literally not how it works." I when sure. I'm feeling depressed, <laughs> I listen to your podcast and it <laughs> motivates me. I don't want to hear about someone brag about how great their career has gone. I want to hear uh, Sean Distin talk about, yeah, like getting uh, arrested. And I, mm-hmm. and I want to hear yep. about Neil Casey yep. living out of his car. Yep. Like, yep, yep. That is, it's part of too why, like, I, I even find that I have a hard time listening to other industry podcasts yeah. because the guests will come on. And talk about everything that's going well, and I'm I feel bad about myself. I f- sure, and it's not it's it's only half of the story though. Yes, right? and and it's the whole reason I started the podcast because it was all of that, and what I realized was just so many folks that I looked up to, and I would read I would read biographies a lot, mm-hmm. and I they would just skim over. It'd be like a sentence, a paragraph. I'd be like, oh yeah. And that was a really hard night. Anyway, I moved on and I was like, wait, tell me about that night. How did you move on? What did you do? (laughs) Those are the things I was interested in. And it's, it's such a lesson too, because it's the name of your podcast, the need to fail. Like you have to fail. It's part of it. It's not just an unfortunate consequence. It's literally part of how you get where you're going. (laughs) Right. It's such an interesting thing because you weren't you a kindergarten teacher for a little bit? I was. Is that right? I lived How long how long did you do that for? Uh I lived another life. I yeah. was a teacher when I first moved to LA. I did teach for America because oh, cool. I was uh afraid of not having a job and mm-hmm. you know, the uh recession was very yep. scary and um I just wanted an excuse to come out to LA, so I did that. Yeah. And I, cool. my first two years in LA, I was part time in school getting a freaking master's in education. Wow. Which is really? just crazy. crazy. It's crazy. I will never use that, but I have it. You uh, were doing that not because you were so passionate. It was really like the ultimate backup plan kind of thing. Was it like an yeah. ultimate safety net situation? Yeah. I think I was like, um, you know, I'm here anyway. Teach for America sort of like does it makes it not easy, but they're like, here, do you want to get your master's? We'll do right, all the paperwork. Right. Just like say yes. <laughs> uh-huh, right. <laughs> um, so I would teach literally full time in a charter school, teaching kindergarten with 30 kids in a class. Whoa. And I was the restraint trained person on staff, which meant oh. when someone was having a tantrum, like I was called in and I held them. And there's like oh a special God. way you hold them. Wow. Yeah. Did it, you, what, how do you get involved in something like, uh, like, do you think you did that well? Or were you like, what am I doing? Every time I'm holding a kid, this is not working out. Words was, you had the capacity for empathy to hold a child. Like you could, you could do all that stuff and you probably did it well enough. Right. You know, it's tough to say, uh, <laughs> I was, a, I had only been teaching, by the end for two years. And I think teachers get better with time, generally speaking. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I did the same exact, I didn't work with kindergartners, but I worked with middle schoolers and man, is that a tough age as well? That's such a tough age to the point where I was like, they should not be in school. Like there should be a collective outdoor situation. And this was a pretty 
hybrid, advanced, kind of almost experiment in like an inner city in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And and it was almost like sixth, seventh, and eighth graders were all kind of together. And it was a weird, it was like a different, it was a different way of teaching. It was project-based learning and all this stuff. But I was like, this shouldn't even happen. Like they, they should just be outside, yeah. running around, screaming, learning social norms and dealing with stuff. And we're dealing there to with just their try mental to like, health. Yeah. We're here to referee a little bit. But kindergarten, you see where it all starts. And it's like, oh, if you don't start working on those issues in kindergarten, I can't imagine by the time you get to middle school. Um, Yeah. But yeah, it's such a different world. I think I came out of it thinking two things. One, I'm not selfless enough to be a teacher. I'm too selfish. I love uh, promoting myself and promoting my work. And I just want to like make my own creative projects. Yeah. Um, and you, gosh, you gotta be selfless as a teacher. You really got to care about yeah. students. It's it. The work life balance is really hard. Yeah. Um, especially now I, I do most of my donations to, you know, teacher based organizations mm-hmm. and, and my mom was a teacher oh, wow. and, um, uh, she was a teacher's aide for like 20 years mm-hmm. uh, with special needs students. So mm. we, I, I think, you know, and I saw some stat like teachers, are, I mean, truly are the most underpaid profession. It's a true selfless job. And it's yes. so disturbing to me because the amount it it's they go, oh, you have summers off and all. it's all bullshit because you take your, it's hard not to take your work home with you. Right. It's like hard oh. not to think about a kid that you held. Yeah. It's hard for me not to think about this kid that hit this other kid and we had to intervene and just hearing him talk about how, you know, his dad hit his mother or mm. he saw, you know, he mm-hmm. saw his brother get hit by his mom or mm-hmm. like that is like gut wrenching stuff that does not leave your head. And no teachers are expected to not only educate, but also be like mental health right. professionals as well to some degree, especially with youth, yeah. which is like sponge. These kids are sponges. They're such you know sponge. I mean? yeah. yeah. It's such a, I'm so passionate about that. And hey, you know what? You did it for two years. <laughs> I, hey, I did it for two years. I did a little. Two years longer than a lot of people. <laughs> yes. I For a while, I kind of couldn't escape teaching. And I was part-time teaching and stuff like that. But but you always knew you wanted to do comedy. Yes. And stuff like that. So yeah. I got to LA thinking I wanted to do, thinking I wanted to act and write. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what that looked like. Sure. And I... My uh, my friend who had who had also moved from Florida was knew she wanted to be a TV writer like since high school. I yeah just knew that was a career you could have, and she was talking to me about it and sort of encouraged me to try screenwriting too. And mm-hmm. we uh, and it all kind of like happened at the same time. My first year out in LA, mm-hmm. and I signed up for an improv class at UCB because I was like between an acting class near my house and my friend from Florida had been like, Oh, you should like maybe try UCB. Uh, I have a friend from college who does it and he's like on a Herald team, which turned out to be (laughs) Zeke Nicholson. Oh, cool. (laughs) Uh, and I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever. And what actually ended up happening was, I had been interested in comedy podcasts in college, especially Mm. comedy bang bang. Right. Not realizing that like all these comedians I was loving on the podcast and like on (laughs) Earwolf podcast were UCB people. So when I got there, I was like, 
this is awesome. <laughs> and I had a very special 101 experience because it was taught by Fran Gillespie. Um, oh, awesome. Who also has a great need to fail episode. Yeah. Um, and she was so uh, intentional about encouraging the women in the class mm-hmm. in a way that teachers after that were not necessarily. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, sure. But she like, she would be like, oh, Anna's really good at characters and stuff like that, which I'm sure was not true at the time. But she would just like say shit to hype me up. And yeah. it made me think that I could be good at it, which gave yeah. me that little bit of confidence to push through, you know, the next yeah. eight years of UCB. Yeah. Um, but so I was doing that. I had signed up for a clubhouse sketch writing class. <laughs> nice. with uh Sergio Sealy. Uh-huh. And I had never screenwritten before. Yeah. Um so I signed You're up. just looking to dabble. Yeah, You're just like just trying to stuff dabble. Out. Uh mm-hmm. but it was a great class. In that class was Private Street. Um mm-hmm. the UCB sketch team or I guess they're mm-hmm. like kind of UCB. Um but they're one of my favorite sketch teams. So like I met them through that and they were putting up sketches. They had a run at sketch showdown at the time. So I like went to go support them. Um, I was like, wow, they're also so good and they're so nice. So I just Mm -hmm. had, I think a very positive experience at the beginning of all of this early. Mm -hmm. Right. And at the same time when I was teaching, I was technically an art teacher. So, Hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. I think I was like the one elementary art teacher in all of Teacher America that year. <laughs> uh, I and, just and they would call you in to hold kids. Yes, yeah. So <laughs> I was, uh, I was teaching kindergarten and eventually kindergarten and first grade art, but also co-teaching English and math and whatever. Right. Yep. But teaching art to five-year-olds is a wild, trippy experience that I. <laughs> encourage everyone to try yeah (laughs) because the way a kid looks at art especially abstract art Uh is so pure they are so emotionally affected by it (laughs) especially like if i would show them a big projected like basquiat or uh pollock or something Uh and they would like scream they would be like oh my god oh that's awesome yeah uh, they immediately get it. They immediately get it. <laughs> yeah. And they also are very quick to accept that they themselves are artists because that was sort mm-hmm. of like a part of the curriculum. It was like, you're an artist. doesn't yep. matter if you're drawing a face and it looks like a face or just your feelings. That's art. And yep. I think that showed me how real art is. Mm-hmm. Um, how valid it is. a great lesson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they taught me, those kids. Hey, everybody, this is the B-Man, old B-W, from the World Record Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that me and my co-host, the A-Train, a.k.a. Hershey Hellman, took over office hours live this week. We came into the studio. We made it our own. We wrecked the place. I stole one of Tim Heidecker's guitars. So check out Office Hours Live on your podcast app of your choice or at youtube.com slash Office Hours Live this week and see what happens. Or go to worldrecordpodcast.com and you can watch the videos or join the Patreon, patreon.com backslash worldrecordpodcast. Enjoy the show!
it's so much. Thing, it's so much. It's so insane how much we unlearn all that stuff when we grow up, too. We right? do. Like exactly. looking at it at Pollock for the first time, you immediately go like, "Hmm." Like there's not the immediate joy of like, "Wow." Exactly. That a kid sees that and goes, "Wow." You look at it and you go, "I wonder this," and I wonder. It's like you're missing like the emotional, exactly. immediate emotional connection to stuff sometimes. Yes. Sometimes not, but like sometimes art hits you in a way where you're like, "Holy shit." Right, but, we forget how to be hit by it, especially with yeah, painting, that right, 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 right. Or we exactly. where we unlearn it in school, and I definitely had a very like scholastic education that was not art focused. Yeah. Uh, um, also, kids don't give a shit like how they react around other kids, right? It's yes. just that they don't have that social kind of filter that we all go like, "Oh, someone's standing next to me, I can't go." Wow, I can't yes. go to the Met. I exactly. can't go to the Met and go like, "Yes." Yes. You know, like people mm-hmm. be like, shut the fuck. What? Like, don't do that. But it's like, but what the fuck is the point of all this then? Like, to yes. not be. <laughs> I mean, it literally, this. it literally happened because I took them on a field trip my uh-huh. first year of teaching to um, the Getty. And oh, there was cool. a Jackson Pollock exhibit at the time, which was perfect because we had studied Jackson Pollock and they'd done their own like Jackson Pollock paintings, splatter paintings. And that's so cool. They were very like, Jackson Pollock is awesome. Jackson Pollock is feelings. So they go Uh see this giant ass Jackson Pollock painting (laughs) and they lost their shit. They were running around. They were screaming. One of them was crying. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Now, unfortunately, part of, I think, what is so difficult about being a teacher is art is not really respected even in like how curriculum is built by the state and Mm -hmm. they were also having to do multiple choice tests every friday as (laughs) five-year-olds and art class would be canceled and we had to proctor these multiple choice tests and i think that was that was such a lesson and like this gets erased out of you and it's so important to find it again Especially yep. if you want to have a creative career. I saw that it didn't stop with the middle schoolers. I went through the exact same thing. It was the mm-hmm. joy and the, you know, you could see in someone's eyes, even as adults, but especially as kids, you see that spark, you see that like yeah. joy and you see the like wheels turning and the creativity just busting out of them. Mm-hmm. And there's no like, and you're not even like judging them in any way. You're mm-hmm. just like, whatever you do is going to be kind of cool. Yeah. You know, like, cause that's you, like you, you see the connection so much. And then it's just like the, you know, fucking drone tests, like the state tests that they brought me in for to like do also, you got to, they, they got to get their state test grades up done. You know, I have to really help yeah. them in math. I was like, but this isn't a way to teach them. Like, the way you're teaching the math is so cool. And then we also have to, you know, do this kind of by rote, you know, yes. learning that just sucks it all out. There's got to be a happy medium, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I think, you know, educators have been fighting this for a long time and right. we are probably not the two people to <laughs> go deep dive into how to do it. But we have hands-on experience to see the joys of art and mm-hmm hands-on learning even like even when i was doing like we'd bring them to a pier and fish and then we take out the fish and measure it and mm-hmm. talk about the scales and put it in the water and watch how it swims and yeah. you know learn about math that way and science and all that stuff and just to see how like 
just the joy in them, like it's doing beautiful. that, that hands on. It is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I will say because this is about failure, my mm-hmm. next. So I, I was thinking all of this, and I left my two years of teaching with like I had a big birthday party from the parents, and it was so uh-huh. cool. I felt so supportive. All my students loved me because I was the fun teacher. Because I didn't have grades, I just didn't mm-hmm. believe in grades. I gave everyone an A, <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I was like people were dressing up as their favorite artists. We had a gallery now. I was like, oh, this That's is cool. great. And then my next job after teaching was as an assistant in the reality TV department at ICM. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, oh, man. I got hired only because my boss had a five-year-old daughter, and he was like, oh, let's experiment with this. <laughs> um, what I didn't know is the reason he was hiring outside of ICM was because no one wanted to work with him. Oh Christ! Cause, right, because they usually it's usually kind of start in the in the uh, in the mailroom. Mail right, 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 right. If you're interviewing like with no work experience to go <laughs> straight to a desk, it's because nobody wants that desk. Oof. Uh, and he was he was tough. And yeah. in all the times of like restraint training kids and like feeling <laughs> their anguish and hearing their extreme stories and like doing house visits. I never cried the way I cried working at ICM after getting just reamed by my boss, like just yelled at so loud in front of everyone. Right. It's the humiliation, right? It's like those companies, I feel, and a lot of those people in power thrive on humiliation. Yes. And, And especially public humiliation, which is just like, again, as teachers, we know that's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. It is. It is because it it builds trauma, and mm-hmm. uh, you're not really uplifting and supporting that person in like the way an apprenticeship could have been. I'm sorry you went through that. Um, did, oh, how long? How long did you uh, endure that? Well, I did my year because um, they. Yeah. I remember I met with a friend's dad who was a line producer before I got that job, and yeah. he was like, "Whatever you do." try to avoid getting the agency job. And I was like, uh, okay. (laughs) But I did it. I stuck it, stuck through a year. Um, I also hated reality TV. Sure. Which, you know, I think if I had been in the lit department or I had the endurance to move over to the lit department, I would have maybe got something out of it that was different. But instead I was surrounded by truly D list reality TV. Yeah. Like, Duck Dynasty ripoffs. Yeah, uh, these are people that think they're important because they're on TV, but no one really knows who they are. And yes, and just yeah. it felt like no one in the department wanted to be in the department. Everyone wanted to be in lit somewhere and, else. Yeah, <laughs> like even my boss wanted to be a screenwriter, and right. here he was a senior agent. He has yep. since quit and become mm-hmm. a screenwriter. There you go. But here he was, like a senior agent in this culture that was. So capitalistic, toxic. so toxic. <laughs> uh, it was, and it was he's a trip. angry at himself probably because he wants yes. to be a fucking screenwriter and he's taking it out on you, yes. like a fucking douchebag. Going through a divorce on top oh, of it, a yeah. messy divorce. Um, this person probably hates themselves and can't deal with it, and and so therefore we're going to just take it out on other people. Yes, uh, and I, you know, it's tough now because I'm so many years removed from that job. 
that I'm like, oh, yeah. it was good. I learned things. Even in interviews, I've, I sort of have a script of being like, well, it was, it was good. But I think yeah. there will come a time when assistants, and it, it sort of happened on Twitter, but when agency assistants truly speak out and are like, hey, yeah. guys, like, what happened to us? Like, my the guy next to me had a desk thrown at him. Like, what happened to yeah. us was not cool, right? They were kind of hinting at it at the end of BoJack Horseman. It felt like a thing that was happening. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you saw the last season, but it was just like, yeah, yeah, we got to unite. We got to we got to unionize here. This is insane. I, exactly. And just the stories I've heard, just over and over and over again. And what a toxic, toxic, abusive. And, and you know what? I think you might have nailed it, which is like a lot of people that don't necessarily want to be doing what they're doing. They're just adjacent, mm-hmm. and they're bitter about that. Mm-hmm. And when people are bitter about that shit, they just take it out on other people mm-hmm. and it's fucking psychotic. Yeah. And fuck them for doing that. But it's such hatred of themselves. It's like, yeah. yeah sorry you went through that. What, is there anything you took away from that? Is there anything you go like, yup, it, uh, it gave me thicker skin or you're just like, nope, that was just a fucking horrible experience. So I actually think, and maybe this is my Pollyanna glasses, mm-hmm. um, but I think I came out of it with something important, which was mm. I realized seeing things from the industry side and being in reality TV, if you are not deliberate about what you want and demand it and like confident in that, for example, like I wanted at that time, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a writer performer working in the comedy space. Mm-hmm. If you don't very deliberately and intentionally go after those things, you will get stuck somewhere you mm. don't want to be. Mm-hmm. And I saw it even with the producers we were working with who wanted yeah. to be screenwriters, but sort of just ended up as executives. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful lesson. <laughs> yeah. And because of that, I went back to school and I went to UCLA and mm. did the master's program in screenwriting, which I think, man, if I have advice to anyone, it's don't get two master's degrees. It's a colossal waste of time. <laughs> But I, it was another sort of, lesson, another lesson, but it was sort of me trying to invest in myself and be like, sure, I need to stop for a second and yeah. just get good at this thing and yeah. focus on it or I won't be doing this thing long term. Especially coming out of an environment where if someone's making you feel bad about yourself often, it's like you get you can only take so much of that to you get to a point where you go. I need to do something for myself that I truly believe. It's like almost like a real kick in the ass to yeah. be like, and maybe sometimes it's an overcorrection. So I say, maybe I wouldn't go back, maybe not get two master's degrees, but it still gave you the clarity to be like, I need to invest in myself right now. Yes. Yes. And it gave me an excuse to sort of get out of there because I, God knows when I would have actually quit. So that way I could be right. like, Oh, I'm going to school um, to my boss. But I, I'll just say this. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget this one moment that I think really encapsulates what it is to work at an agency. <laughs> it was Halloween. Mm-hmm. Halloween morning was a Friday. My boss gave me $40 cash and said, go to the party store during your lunch break and buy Halloween decorations <laughs> and decorate my door. Cause it like all the, agents had Halloween decorations on their door done by their assistant and it was very competitive. They would uh-huh. like brag about how great they were. All right. So it was like 
and get decorations. So I go during my lunch break. I get decorations. Um, I did it. It was like not enough money to get enough decorations. So I was like freaking out. I was indecisive. I get like, like kind of bloody things and put it on his door. He comes back. He goes, this looks disgusting. He throws it off the door, goes inside, shuts the door. And I don't see him again. Oh, Jesus. In my panic of like, oh my God, I fucked up. I ran downstairs to the little convenience store in our building, asked to borrow the convenience store's window display dancing skeletons. Oh my God. Rushed upstairs, (laughs) put them outside the door. Oh. He never came out again until 7 p.m. that day. Oh. Didn't acknowledge them, just walked out. Oh, Christ. Jesus You know, Christ. it's really hilarious now, but that was like the worst day of my life at the time. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, this is horrible. I was like crying. And now right. looking back, I'm like, that's so stupid, man. That doesn't have anything yeah. to do with writing. It's just pleasing someone that can't be pleased. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a Sisyphusian <laughs> situation. You're just pushing that rock up and it's yes. always going to roll back down. Yeah. And I've been an assistant a few times or I was an assistant two times after that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. A showrunner's assistant and a personal assistant. And it is, it's this weird thing. I think it's like, not enough people talk about how we have this system, especially in writing of like, if you want to break in, you have to be an assistant and the shit you take and the ways you sort of get brainwashed into thinking your value is tied to how well you can serve this person is damaging. That, and I think it's important to let people know that there's a swath of people that don't have the privilege just to, of knowing someone on a show where they, you know, yeah. it's either nepotism or something like that. Like a lot of people have to be assistants to get into, yeah. into the system, into this world. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you're treated like such shit sometimes. I'm sure there's, I've heard stories of great showrunners, you know what I mean? That yeah. treat people with respect, but there is, there is a, there's almost a, you know, I was in a fraternity and a lot of this shit just feels fraternal. It feels like we're doing this because this happened to me or this is just how it is. Mm-hmm. Or I can brag to my friends about what I, you know, did here and this or like, oh, yeah, I make my fucking assistant, you know, mm-hmm. get all the jelly beans, the yellow jelly beans for me or some dumb shit like that. Oh, it's always where it's so just dumb. Like, yeah. There's always it's a, it's but it's there's no empathy and there's you're not seeing these people as humans. So it's like. Yeah. What the fuck are you, you know, it's a power trip. It's all insecurity too. Cause we, me and you are both insecure people, I'm sure. Right. Oh, like very much. And, and I think that's part of your, I think part of your therapy is probably your art and mm-hmm. your comics. Right. Yeah. And so uh, apologies if I'm projecting, I'm, I'm doing this from what I'm getting from your art. Oh no, no, uh, you're spot on. But I relate to it. I relate to it a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and it just seems like some people take it out on themselves and some people take it out on other people 
And I think we take it out on ourselves a lot. Yes. And I'm sure we take it out on other people in certain situations or if we get cut off or yeah. if we see, if we feel not seen, yeah. I guess, if we're not, if we feel not seen, it, it's almost like a way to take it, this, it almost opens the door and allows us to take it out on someone else. But most of the time we're beating the shit out of ourselves because I feel like those people hate themselves in some degree Yeah, and are taking and take that hatred out on others. And it feels, it's like accepted. And it's just unacceptable. <laughs> it is. It man, shit, shit runs downhill. Uh, yeah. It it's it's weird, and it it's made me think. Like, first of all, I've also had great bosses, mm-hmm. um, who have. I think the difference between a bad boss and a good boss in this business is a bad boss sees you as a means to their ends, mm. and especially with assistants, will dehumanize you. Right. Uh, like doesn't really care what you're doing personally in your personal and professional growth. And a good boss will like uplift you in those ways. Yeah. But yeah. it has made me think like, if I ever get, not if, when I get to showrunner mm. level, yeah, would I really want an assistant? Mm. It's such a, I don't know. Because you have to let the person in. You have to let yeah. them see. Like, I knew everything about my boss's messy divorce. There's almost like a level of vulnerability that they're uh, angry about. Yes. That they, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm going to punish you because you see me for me. You see what I see in the mirror. Yeah. And I'm going to punish you for that and dehumanize you. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> it's just, it's the, I'm sorry. It's just, but yeah, I mean, with going back to the, because you were saying, oh, I wanted to write and I wanted to mm-hmm. act, but was art always a part of your life? And because you've been doing the comic for what, like seven years now? Yeah. I, uh, so, I mean, that's, I guess the other thing I got out of my time teaching was the comic. Um, yeah. I was teaching these kids how to, not really how to draw, because that negates the whole curriculum, which was you're an <laughs> artist and anything you draw is good. But you're guiding them. You're your guide. Guiding them. And I am not a mm-hmm. good fine artist. Like I am not mm-hmm. technically good at drawing. So I but they were five and they were easily impressed. So I would do these like stick figures for them mm-hmm. um, to mm-hmm. communicate things or like just draw myself. And right. They were so excited about it that it gave me a little <laughs> bit of confidence of like, I can just draw this thing and it's good. Um, and it yeah. counts. Yeah. And around that same time, I had gotten into autobio comics, like reading um, mm-hmm. just all the cool indie comics. And I had gotten into yeah. Scott Pilgrim and mm-hmm. uh, was thinking about comics, I guess, in a way I had never done. I had always liked cartoons and like comic strips yeah but reading these comic books i was like suddenly thinking in panels and right and almost like the fourth wall breaking of aspect of it as well i'm sure yes exactly and where it's like i can talk to the reader yes totally Uh, it doesn't have to be this narrative thing that's a little removed um so i i had just broken up with my boyfriend this was the summer after my first year of teaching Hmm. uh and I was devastated and depressed and I was depressed about having moved to um, L.A. I, I had at that time been in a lot of denial about my mental health, mm-hmm. um, like sure. 
my dad had been diagnosed with cancer and he's fine now. But I just mm-hmm. I had been carrying this trauma and just been like, nope, I'm fine. This is just this yeah. is how life is. This is how right. you operate in life. Yeah. And I I broke up with that boyfriend or rather he broke up with me and I drew this comic about how I was feeling hmm. and even the relief of like getting out of that relationship. Um, and, and the, in the center was my little comic or a version of my comic person. And I posted it to Instagram, which at that time was just sepia tone photos and like Hell yeah. filter photos of, grass and stuff lakes yeah yes <laughs> truly I, there were not comics on instagram at that time which is insane to think about but i posted it and people were like this is cool yeah. and i and i i think i was waiting for someone to be an audience to my art like mm. as if that had never really happened before um right and that was enough. So I did another one and I did another one. And that feedback kind of kept me making them. And in that yeah. time, in those first few years, I was making the comic um, and then had a career shift, went to ICM. I was yeah. like, they were bad. They were rough that I didn't really have my voice figured out. Some of them were just puns. Mm-hmm. But thanks to that feedback, that constant, like, these are cute, these are cool. I pushed through it, and after a few years, found my voice. Yeah. And it was it was before I had found my voice as a screenwriter, and even mm. as a comedian. But yeah. just having that one distillation of what I knew to be my authentic creative voice right. helped me understand what it meant to be a creative professionally and right. what it meant to develop my voice as a screenwriter. It's a game changer. It's a game changer moment. It was freaking huge. I, I really yeah. think it changed my life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as the years went on, Instagram web comics became a thing. It like started to yeah. garner yeah. a little bit of a following. And I s- eventually got to a point where now I can like now I'm developing a couple shows and things. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it, I think it just helps to have people, even if it's not in your life, even if it's the internet telling you, Hey, that thing you made is cool. Yeah. Right. And, and it's almost like, it feels like you didn't go into it um, expecting or wanting that or, or was that, or not knowing that maybe you wanted that? like It was not a part of it at all. It was literally yeah. me being a teacher, having to be like PG rated during the day. Yeah, being yeah. like, I am falling apart outside uh-huh. of this. I'm drinking like crazy. I'm doing drugs. Like I'm not uh-huh. dealing with my mental health issues. I just need to communicate it. And I'm also very yeah. bad at uh, talking to people about my feelings. Mm-hmm. So sure. it it gave me an outlet. Um, yeah, I think a weird part of all of it is I was making comics about anxiety and depression, and not really dealing with those things. And mm. it has taken me like these ten years of being in LA uh, to be like, oh, 
I need to deal with these things besides just drawing about them. Interesting. Yeah, because I I was going to ask about that. I was like, oh, this feels like therapy because part of therapy is like accepting and confronting the stuff. But it's almost like you it's almost doing this is just the confrontation and almost making light of it. But there's not like the like, well, what's behind why? Why is depression standing at the door smoking a cigarette? You know what I mean? Like, why is this? Why is anxiety always like on my shoulder doing its thing? And what's kind of behind all that stuff, I'm sure, is such a. Yeah. Is, is how to, is what you need to maybe go deeper with. Right. It's, it's so true. I, I thought my comics were therapy because mm. when I was depressed, I had a way to tell the world that I was depressed in a way yeah. I just couldn't do in real life. Like right. my parents right. don't talk about feelings. Yep. Therapy wasn't normalized and I was in denial mm-hmm. that I needed it. So I was like, yep. well, I feel better just doing this and having people respond and DM me and say, Oh, I can totally relate to this. I feel these things too. Yeah. But it, <laughs> me and man, I'm, I'm like ashamed to say this, but it wasn't until my 30th birthday, like a couple of weeks ago that I really got serious about therapy and was like, I need to do the rest of the work or I'm never going to deal with this shit. It will oh, always be the punchline. So you were using this mostly as therapy. You didn't um, go in or you didn't make a choice to kind of really get serious about therapy until recently. Yeah. You saying. know, I had been in and out, but mm-hmm. never really clicked with it. Mm-hmm. I think. Sure. I was also, I think, telling myself that like narrative of to be an artist is to be tortured. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. I've been there. <laughs> you know, like- it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a fucking lie. And I think it works for some people. And un- unfortunately, unfortunately it worked for our heroes, but mm-hmm. a lot of our heroes, maybe, maybe yeah. not, I don't know. But a lot of people I looked up to, uh, I have to be a certain way or it, you feel bad about yourself, right? Because you can't be as tortured. And in doing that, you torture yourself. Yes. It's like this fucked up snakey eating tail situation where you go like, they had an authentic life. They made that choice. They had their traumas. Yes. And it's almost like uh, we're trying to recreate someone else's traumas. And in doing that, we're fucking ourselves up even more, but not in a creative way. Right. Like not, in, not in an authentic way. We're not using our authentic traumas. We're right. not using our authentic cells mm-hmm. to create this thing, you know, create our art. It's, it's, I mean, you were, you were using your, you were confronting your depression and your anxieties and other things. And getting them out. It was a way for you to communicate them. But sometimes, you know, communicating, like that's just one side of the story, right? In therapy, yes. it's like, it's me communicating and the other person listening. It's like if your audience listened and like would give you collective advice on being like, you know, yeah, being like, just talk, talk, talk to, talk to the depression more. Yeah. Don't let it, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever it is. I'm just making the shit up. But do you know what I mean? There's that other side of it. There's the other side of kind of like addressing what's behind everything. Exactly. That's difficult and scary as fuck. It, it is. It's scary. <laughs> it is so scary. I mean, that's why I was avoiding it with drugs and alcohol. And Oh, yeah. Uh, and you're not alone in that. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's it. And even comedy was a kind of drug in that I could just, you know, I mean not deal with anything, but get enough social interaction and the high of like getting laughs on the stage. 
that yeah, I the was stage like, was where I could make yeah. where I could feel like I could do all the things I'm feeling inside. Whereas in regular society, I feel like I have to bottle them all up. The stage was a place where I can do everything, and it was a safe space to do it. Right, yeah. like no one was going to like necessarily judge me, even though I felt judged at times, especially early on when maybe I'd go too far with a feeling or something like that. You mm-hmm. kind of learn to temper some of that shit, but it was a safe space to kind of yeah. get all that out. Yeah, I think that's what art is, right? <laughs> it is. It's finding that safe space. Yeah, yeah. And I think what you were saying earlier, like you, you are doing a disservice to yourself if you think being tortured is the only way to make content. You will make more content if you do the work because that trauma is still yeah. there. You'll. It's like you have yeah, an endless right. well of trauma. You're never going to run out of trauma. To it ain't going away. Art. Yeah, unless you're repressing it and that's not good, but it's like it's not going away and it's, it's, it's kind of learning how to use your trauma as a superpower instead of yeah. letting it control your life and then also being okay with it's going to control your life at certain points. It's going to trigger you certain points it's gonna define you in certain ways but there's yeah. other ways that it doesn't have to define you. there's other ways we can actually use it and that's mm-hmm. just really difficult man it's just really really difficult to kind of learn that hear that believe that i guess as yeah. well i think that's like that's not an overnight thing either this is like a fucking you have to show up and work on this stuff and it's confronting trauma that's so painful sometimes yeah um whether it's big or small uh that you don't want to feel bad anymore. You don't. You don't want to feel bad. And I think with a lot of women, you have the added piece of like, and I don't want to make other people feel bad mm. or like disappointed. Right. So right. I'm not going to tell them how I'm actually doing because they don't they don't need that. But yeah, it's, you know, I'm, so I'm developing bad comics into a show right now. Oh, um, awesome. Congrats. That's sort of like the... I, the my need to fail moment of like mm-hmm. this is where it got to like eight years ago I was just trying to feel like an adult among five-year-olds and now <laughs> I get yeah and now I get to see all these years later what it has evolved into so I'm developing yeah. it and one of the really hard parts about that is a understanding that depression anxiety and anxiety now in the worlds of my comics are their own characters. Yeah, right. And they don't have to just literally be like the depression hanging on my back, but yeah. now have their own goals and their own dreams and Yeah, yeah. Like in That's in a the, trip. Yeah. And in this world <laughs> depression has his own problems. Like he is uh, aloof and too cool for school, but deep down yeah. he wants to feel cared for. Uh, right. And I think that has sort of helped me to see depression and anxiety can be things we deal with and work with, despite the fact that they will all, always be there. I will always be an anxious person. Um, right. But it doesn't have to be this monster on my back that I'm constantly in fear of. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's such a, that's, that has to be such a, literal weight off your shoulders a little bit i'm guessing (laughs) yeah yeah and not to paint this in a rose colored lens or anything because you know we all deal with this shit and it's hard and it it doesn't stop being hard but i you know i think investing in myself is like my goal for the second half of this year Mm -hmm. um i started doing artist way a year ago 
thanks yeah. to this show because hell yeah, you guys talked oh, about awesome. it. Awesome, yeah. Um, and it really helped me because it like I I had never done any kind of work like that before of the like creative recovery. Yeah, sure. Um, and now I'm rereading it a year, basically a year later. Uh, cool. In tandem with therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know what? This is just, this is what my soul has been waiting for. Yeah, it's a real, it's a, it's a beautiful, it's so hard too sometimes because, you know, for me, it's like, I know it helps me out. It's just kind of the planning it all. And yeah, with your art, are you plan like, do you schedule that out or is it like when it hits you? Cause like mm-hmm. during the quarantine, it, it you said it was very hard mm-hmm. to kind of kind of get it, get it going. Do routines help you or um, are you doing morning pages and stuff like that? Are you pretty type A with that stuff or yeah. is that always a struggle? So I am, I'm like type A while also being a total slob and mess. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm type A, but also I sleep until 10 a.m. and eat junk mm-hmm. food and will go hours playing animal crossing in the morning. That's also, that's also avoidance though, too. I think laziness is avoidance. That's what I've learned. So that's like part of you. It's, it's still anxiety creeping in. It's still anxiety taking control where you're like, uh, it's, it's fear of starting the day. It's fear of, you know, um, a a bunch of things, but it's avoiding something. I think, I don't think we're inherently lazy. I don't think we're inherently lazy. I I think some people are sure, but if you have type A tendencies, your mm-hmm. laziness is avoidance, probably. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Uh, I'm guessing. No, that's, I, th- I think that's spot on, very much. Um, but I do the morning pages, and those have really helped me. Those especially awesome. have helped me with writing, just because it gets you out of your head, and just the journaling aspect of it has been good. But I do my morning pages in a specific way. I, mm. I know you're supposed to do, like, the three handwritten pages, I mm-hmm. type for 10 minutes every morning oh, on awesome. a timer. And That's it could be about anything. Uh, I sometimes I'll like miss a day here and there, but generally speaking, I do that and it's hmm. been great. I recommend That's it awesome. to truly everybody. I think sometimes that's what turns people off, not turns people off, but c- certain people go like, I can't do it the exact way that this person, this guru is telling me to do it. But mm-hmm. it's like, you got to find your own way to do it. You have to find a way where you um, are not feeling bad about yourself too. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you have to find the way that actually works for you. Mm-hmm. And if yours is t- typing for 10 minutes, like type for 10 minutes. If yeah. mine is, mine was, uh, I bought a very small notebook. So my three pages were very quick. It would only mm-hmm. take me 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. It wasn't like a large notebook. Right. Uh, I can't, I don't have the time to write for that long. Yeah. Uh, I, especially now. Um, so it's like, I have to be okay with, my morning pages is going to be uh, a sentence. Mm-hmm. It's just going to, it could be um, just something that was on my mind in a dream or something like that. And if I want to keep writing, I'll keep writing. And if I don't, I'm going to end it in a paragraph because I got to fucking make breakfast for my kid or whatever it is. Right. So mm-hmm. I think it's those things uh, for me, I'm just talking about myself. I apologize, but no, it's, totally. I, I feel like a lot of people don't do some of the self-help stuff because it doesn't, exactly work for them and it's like mm, it's a guide you'll figure out and you don't have to do it exactly the way they're telling you to do it yeah yeah i think that's what turns a lot of people off with artist way like i've mm-hmm. you know i sound like so corny 
But I tell all my friends to do artist way. Like I told my mom to do it. I bought her mm -hmm. a copy. I bought her the audio book so that she listened to it. I order it on Amazon to friends. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I know that if you're not in the mood to do it, you're just not going to do it. But I, I say that, you know, that the morning page thing is it's so important to do what works for you. Yeah. Even if morning sure. pages means doodling, like I think yeah. that that habit has been really productive. I see it as almost like uncorking like a wine bottle mm -hmm. because I feel like sometimes we feel like we're just tipping a wine bottle over and no wine's coming out and the cork's in and we know the cork's in, but we still expect wine to come out in some weird way. What yeah. morning pages does is uncorks the fucking thing. So you can pour as much or a little as you want, but it gets it it gets enough it gets the blockage out, I guess. Yeah. Um, and shows that you can create and, and no one's watching you. You're like, you're not. Yeah. That's the worst of it is if you feel like, oh, someone's going to read this. Like right. the joy of it is like, no one's going to, I can just burn this and it doesn't matter. Right. That's the hardest part with creating anything. I mean, hmm. it's like, I, I think I have a tendency to do this when I'm thinking of new scripts because that voice will creep into my head of like, my manager or whatever being like, Oh, will this sell? Is this a good sample mm -hmm. for you? Like, right. You kind right. of have a sample similar to this. Maybe you should be doing this. And those are like the worst things you could do for your creative voice. Yeah. It's, it's hard to capitalize without judgment. And mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of our issues or maybe it's just my issue, but it's like capitalizing on that. Oh, that feeling that you get where you go, like I have the idea and it's like catching that idea and yeah. then all the things you tell yourself to talk yourself out of it. Oh, it's too similar to my last one, or they're not looking for this, or I'm supposed to be writing X, Y, and Z, and this is so different, and you know, sci-fi doesn't sell, or whatever the whatever excuse comes up, man, you're so good at giving yourself excuses. Yeah. It's so easy to talk yourself out of things. <laughs> yeah. And the and the 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 truth is there is an audience for absolutely everything. Right. Like the weirdest shit has an audience and i think we've that's yes. even a a factor of like what we've been told and something my like old school screenwriting teachers would say in terms of like well if you're doing a comedy it should be like this or like you don't want to have voiceover in your comedy or no dramedies and the truth is yeah. there are no rules this is the age of the internet you could be so freaking weird yeah. or specific yeah. with your art and there will be people who love it yeah, I always go back to the thousand true fans things. Like you can make a living on something if you have like a thousand true fans. So like mm -hmm. you don't need to change the world and you don't need to, you can want to and try to, but you don't need to impress 10 million people anymore. If yeah. you put all your effort in and really bring joy to a thousand people that will follow you and respect you and support your art, mm -hmm. there are ways to to make your art sustainable then. Yes. Um, and I think my comic has shown me that. I. Mm -hmm. I've definitely resisted being too strict with it because um, the, my comic is like one of the few things in the world that hasn't been turned into a part of my career, even though it has mm -hmm. in some ways because I'm developing it. But the comic right. itself is not a money-making enterprise. Right. And right. that helps it feel still like a release. It helps yeah, me feel right. like this is a thing I can go to. To there's no pressure. Yes. Yeah. There's no pr there's no pressure that you're putting yourself on. 
you listen, you went through something at the beginning of the pandemic where it was really hard because anxiety was kind of overpowering you, it seems. Mm -hmm. And, but once that kind of, once you start just writing again and getting it out again, then you, there's no, like the pressure's off. And were, were there other times over the years where you were like, I just can't do this or I don't want to do this or I don't know what to say. And then if, if so, mm-hmm. like, how did you get out of that? Like, how do you get out of your holes? I think that's a tough question. I would say mm. there have been times in like, even since I started making the comic that I have felt like, I don't want to do it anymore. Like not, mm-hmm. I, I want to quit, but just, I'm like, mm-hmm. I'll feel like, man, I feel like I've done everything. I've covered mm-hmm. everything I can cover yeah. in the world. feels like comic. a burden a little bit. Yes. And I will, I will take a break. Like I'm definitely not a regular poster when you mm-hmm. compare me to some of these really good web mm-hmm. comics who are just so savvy at like, they, they know to post at a certain time every single day. They post about yeah. things that are trending and yeah. I'm not, I can't, I don't have the bandwidth for that. I right. can only do what feels true to me in the moment. Right. Um, but I would say the things that have gotten me through creative block recently, mm-hmm. I think artist way was mm-hmm. big and gotcha. So what was happening when I started artist way was I, I had been a showrunner's assistant and then I got fired from being a showrunner's assistant, which I don't tell a lot of people because it sounds way better if I'm just like, yeah, you know, then we parted ways. <laughs> but I was a bad assistant and I can say that now because now I am a professional writer, but I was not a good assistant. I was, mm-hmm. while I was a showrunner's assistant, I was also very deep in UCB and I was on mod and mm-hmm. I was working with my sketch partner, Heather as like Mm -hmm. John Baxter and we were making Mm -hmm. videos and we were doing sketch showdown and I just, and I was making the comic. I didn't. Yeah. Being an assistant wasn't your life. (laughs) It wasn't. I didn't prioritize my boss enough. Um, and for that I was a bad assistant and I was rightfully (laughs) fired, but I was (laughs) devastated when I got fired because it felt like I had failed. Um, sure. And I, I got a writing job kind of soon after that Mm -hmm. on a, paramount network sketch show that never got released um Mm -hmm. and then after that so i was like all my problems are solved i'm a writer now i never have to be an assistant again and then i was unemployed for like a year after that um and i didn't get another writing job i didn't even get like crumbs of anything i wasn't i had a manager but i wasn't really getting any leads um you were actively though pursuing this stuff like you were putting stuff out and all that stuff. Yes. And I, um, mm-hmm. the, the show that I was working on when it didn't go forward, like that was also tough. And I just, I yeah. felt like I was in this pool of failure and I was, mm. uh, I had stopped teaching and tutoring, but I, mm. I had to like go back and teach college, um, mm. which sounds like a weird backup plan, but I just like can't escape teaching. <laughs> So I was teaching at UCLA just for money, uh-huh. but mm-hmm. it, I think that that perception that I was failing made it really hard to write and create. Yeah. Um, yep. And fast forward a bit to 
I had sort of discovered artist way. I heard you guys talk about it, Mm -hmm. um, bought the copy and it was like a switch. As soon as I started Mm -hmm. doing it, maybe like four chapters in, it was like a switch had been flipped because it reminded me that these external sources of validation were Mm -hmm. not real and that my creative output didn't have to be capitalistic. Mm -hmm. Um, like the or fact, rely on that validation. Right. The fact that I was unemployed didn't mean that I was creatively untalented. Right, right. Um, and that I didn't even have to, to make a piece of art in a day for it to be a good day. Like I could spend right. that day going on a walk and like finding sources of inspiration because mm-hmm. that piece is also important to the output. Right. And then... So I was like, I was feeling great about all those things. And then I got cut from Harold. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and it was like, Harold at that time was like the only thing I had going on in my life. I was, you know, I still didn't have a job. Um, right. It's the thing you can go to for some sort of creative outlet or some sort of joy. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, like, and, I, and getting on Harold had, I, it had coincided with my first writing job. And I was like, I did it. I cracked the code. I'm, yeah. I've gone through all the hurdles at UCB. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I made it. Yes. I had like been invited to do improv for humans. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is it. And then yeah. I got cut. And I that hurt because I thought that I was manifesting my success and I had figured it all out. Yeah. And I I was I wasn't even nervous about cuts too, like when they were coming. People are like, how yeah. are you doing? I was like, I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah, you didn't think you were going to get cut. Yeah, I'm, I've been manifesting yeah. this, so I'm good. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I was like goal setting during my heralds. I was like, I I, I, I don't need to worry. Yeah, but you're visualizing. You're feeling it. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Been but, there. Yeah, but that was tough, and it was tough, too, because uh, suddenly I didn't have – the, like the one thing that made me feel like I was good at stuff and also my social circle because right. I was like using Harold to have friends. Yeah. But I kept doing artist way. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I was going to ask, like, did you want to just throw the book out the window and be like, you failed me. Like I, this I is did. all a facade. I yeah. did. I Cause wanted, I've been there. <laughs> yes. Yes. Where I was like, what? I, you tricked me. You told yeah, me, you this, me that I could do this. But right. I kept doing it because I was midway through the book at that Good point. Good for you. Yeah. And I kept awesome. doing the pages. And thank God I did. Because I yeah. was right at the part in the book where it was like, what do you want a year from now? What do you want 10 years from now? Right. What can you do a month from now? What can you do a week from now to, to do that? Yep. And for me at the time, it was make a movie. And I wanted yeah. to be at Sundance. Yep. Um. And that felt like ridiculous and unreachable. But I, you know, I used those like small goals, thanks to the yep. book to be like, okay, this is the thing I can do tomorrow. Right. Um, and what it guided me to realize was like, I need to make a short film. I should crowdfund that short film and I should just do it right now. <laughs> I have the time. I am unemployed. I was getting uh-huh. unemployment checks somehow for a whole year. I would like stop and start it. I truly uh-huh. scanned the system. <laughs> so I did it. And 
I, you know, I'm, I'm like someone who is so paralyzed with indecision and like second guessing yeah. myself, but the book was there being like, no, 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 do it, do it. Just sink your teeth into it. Mm-hmm. So right. I crowdfunded a film. I raised, uh, like $6,500. Awesome. Um, and the outpouring of support on that was so cool. Like people kind of came out of the woodwork. My bad comics following supported the film. I had like people I looked up to like, uh, Jeff Trammell, uh, from cartoon Mm. network who does Craig of the Creek, like helped me close the gap to get me greenlit. Raphael Waxberg, uh, donated from Bojack Horseman. And I was like, this is so cool. And then I shot the film. And around that time, another film I had made got into a film festival. So it it was like, thanks to Artist Way, this door had been opened. Of like, oh, yeah, I am bigger than jobs, than like writing jobs or than UCB. Yeah. Um, there is still this whole world of film that I love that I was forgetting just because I was attaching my value um, yeah, to right. these other things. It feels like getting it feels like getting kicked off a of Harold Knight without Artist Way would probably put you into a hole of some sort. Oh yeah, specifically with anxiety, depression that can really over that can really probably overpower you. Yes. but having that as a guide kind of was a way to deal with some of that stuff to just kind of keep the momentum, I guess, moving forward. It was, but, it was like it, it allowed me to harness that failure right, and make something right. else. And I made the film and now it's, you know, submitted into things, but like that was the film I needed to make to now make the next film I want to make. Like yep. with filmmaking, it is like you just, you make one and <laughs> as preparation for the next one. Uh-huh. It's all stepping stones. Yeah. And that's not to say I wasn't devastated. Like I'm still devastated. I got cut. Sure. That, that sure. shit sucks. Um, mm-hmm. Especially like now that we're talking about um, restructuring the theater and everything, it makes me like think on that and be like, Oh, why, why, <laughs> yeah. why? Um, yeah. Especially like there's so little at next representation at the theater, but yeah. You know, it was good. It was good. And uh, UCB helped me build the community and the tools I needed to get to where I'm at. But that institution can be toxic or the institutional 100%. part of it. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, the dogma, the institutional aspects of it. It's the, I, always, I mean, I say it almost every episode. It's like the community that is the power of that and meeting, and meeting your people. Right. Like you got to meet your, your, your like-minded folks. There's so many like different fucking weirdos there. Yeah. And I made, you know, I made the film mostly with people from the community, yeah. um, including Edgar, who I met through the community. And now you live together. And now we live together. We've been dating three years. It is crazy. Like as much as you want to test that relationship, move in together during a pandemic. <laughs> truly. Oh my God. Truly. We moved in together the day quarantine started. <laughs> bonkers march 15th we had no furniture we had to like order furniture the ikea closed like days Uh, after we moved in together so uh, we 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 were like uh hurrying to order plates and forks and things because neither of us had anything yeah as our friend amy was like devastated because she was gonna have to go back to australia because we didn't know how long lockdown would be, but yeah, it was, right. 
Um, speak, but, but with with relationships, I just I want to say like I always I had always a fear. I'm just saying you had said, oh, I'm going to really try to work on myself the rest of this year. And mm-hmm. I, I always had a fear of like, oh, if I'm, I'm being selfish and I'm not really taking care of my partner. But in taking care of yourself, oftentimes I'm so much more open to hearing my partner and being there for them. I think that was a fear I had for a while that just turned out to not be true. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, Edgar is like very emotionally intelligent and far mm-hmm. more emotionally intelligent than me. Uh, he's been in therapy for years. When we met, he was like, oh, you need therapy. And I was like, what? No. But one thing he's shown me is we take out our mental anguish on our partners. And yeah. the only way to be a good partner is to take care of your own shit. Um, yeah. And like, I project on him all the time. He, we also do... You know, like so many people, I think in this community, we both do the same thing for work. So Mm -hmm. when I'm feeling low or in the past when I've been feeling low about work stuff, it can hurt to see that he's doing so well. Um, And I'll take that out on him passive aggressively. Um, (laughs) But that's like that's that's not fair to him. And I. I have to deal with like, oh, what is it inside of me that's making me so jealous and bitter? Yeah. Yeah. That I can't be happy for him. And it's like act right. it's like constant work to remind yeah, yourself sure. of that because in this business we're getting constant rejection. Yep. But yeah, I mean, I feel like if you ask him these same questions, he'll he'll be a little harder on how I've done. He'll be like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> she's passive aggressive <laughs> but it's part of the i mean shit man we've all been through it and i think laura and i have just tried to we've turned i think we were i think we were always strong i mean early on there was like the like you're in ucb together and they're in this thing together and there's the jealousy thing and but really the more we were together the more like you know her success is my success and my success is her success and we truly just believe it and feel that now because especially when you have a kid especially when you're building a life together you know it's yeah. it all goes in the same pot and 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 you're really booing each other yeah. and it's it, and it's i always just try to put it's like not right now is a thing that I, that helps me it's like all right it's not happening for me right now it's not happening for her right now yeah. doesn't mean it's never going to happen for us though kind of thing so yeah it's uh it's you know relationships man like i i'm all for working on yourself and and we're not perfect people you know what i mean and and our partners aren't either and it's it's really it's really listening and supporting each other to really kind of make that shit work and just seeing them as a buoy. Yeah. I think is a, is a helpful thing. And look, we're in couples therapy, but as a like, yeah. it, it, even when I tell people that I'm, I'm like, no, 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 but it's not like that. We're fine. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, no, I've been there too. We, yeah, of course. It's been great. It's given us like the tools to communicate so that we can 100%. communicate better. Um, There's nothing wrong with trying to be better. Yes. <laughs> improve, improve yourselves and love someone and go, I want to be the best person I can be for you. Right. Let's be the best people we can be for each other. And you know what? There's a lot of places where we can learn how to do that because we don't have the tools right now. Someone's just giving you a hammer. Someone's giving him a saw. Yeah. You know, you're building the fucking thing together. It's like sometimes we just don't have these tools. Before Laura and I went, uh, had a kid, we were like, we got to go see somebody. Like, let's, yes. let's talk out our fears together. Let's talk out all this stuff. Like, 
why wouldn't we do that before? Right. Why would we just wait until we had this huge life change to then work out all our shit? Exactly. You know I mean? And we're still working out shit. You know, it doesn't end. No. So, I mean, I, I applaud anybody that takes preemptive steps to be like, I'm committed to this. I right. love you. It's, it's and I want to be the best person for you. Yeah. It is. And I think doing that, like even moving in together was a wake up call of like, oh, you, you got to do more work if this is going to grow into yeah. a stable relationship. Yeah. Um, but it, it has been great. Like I feel like such a phony cause I'm like therapy's great after all these years of being in <laughs> such, such denial about it. Yeah, um, I'm ha- that it's taking me now to be like, Oh, you do it. It's like going for a jog. You don't do it because you're like, or I mean, you can't do it if you're sick, but you do it for maintenance. Absolutely. You're wor- you work out your physical body to keep maintenance and to keep it healthy. You have to work out your mental. You have to work out your spiritual. It's all ma- it's all maintenance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for doing this. This was uh, uh, time flew by for me. I looked up. I was like, holy shit. Oh, thank you. It was so fun. I, yeah. I've just I've loved hearing every need to fail over the years. And I just I appreciate it. I get so much life from them. So this was an honor. That's awesome. I'm, that's, I'm so happy to hear that. And I would say the same with your comics. You probably don't see what it does for people as well, but it's like, or how they can relate to the, to your art. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I don't, I hear how people relate to this and I get it. And part, part of it was, you know, knowing that, Oh, this might help some folks like hearing this stuff as it helps me. Mm-hmm. But like the same thing with your, with your comics is always, help. I, I, I just love looking at that. Just, just being like, Oh yeah, I've been there. Oh. Like just the small relatable moments make you not feel alone. Mm-hmm. Right. So Thank uh, you. thanks for your artwork. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. That was Anna Salinas. Thanks, Anna, for rocking this out with me. Check out the animated series she wrote on, Sugar and Toys. It's on Fuse. It's dropping this fall. Her comedy short, Foghorn, should be dropping at the end of the year, so be on the lookout for that. And go to badcomicsbyanna.com for all things Anna, including her comic. But you can also follow her on Instagram and Twitter, badcomicsbyanna. That's comics with an X. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Don Finale or at The Need to Fail. Questions, concerns, failure stories of your own. Hit me up at the need to fail at gmail.com. Call 657-222-1324. Leave a message with a failure failure or scream into the void. I'll play it on this podcast. Flash sale on all things need to fail, a.k.a. my one design from July 7th to July 10th or 11th. I don't I'm not sure. On T Public, uh, check out my Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook uh, for the link. And why not rate and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher and tell all your failure friends to do so as well. That's it for me here. Got all new failures coming at you next week. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Don Finelli. Mahalo your dreams. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram 
at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.